0: Do you know what happens when you flip the light switch? How many people, dollars, and computers are involved to charge your smartphone? Do you understand the policy implications, political landmines, and local issues as we transition to clean energy? Well, we're here to answer those questions and more. Welcome to No Power. Hosted by informed industry experts, Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti, No Power is all about demystifying the entire energy industry without getting into the politics getting you more involved in the discussion, and empowering you with knowledge to make an intelligent choice today and the future. Head on over to nopowershow.com or wherever you get your podcast so you can listen and subscribe and never miss an episode. And now, here are your hosts, Noha and Michael. Today we're
1: interviewing Manu Asana, who's president and CEO of PJM Interconnection. And for those of our listeners that are not that familiar with PJM, it is basically the entity that runs the electricity markets in 13 states in the District of Columbia. So everything spanning from south of New York and north of North Carolina.
2: Yeah, it's actually the biggest power market in the planet by billing. Over $60 billion a year flows through those markets. And they also manage literally thousands of miles of transmission lines in that same area. And they dispatch 1,500 generators on a daily basis to keep the lights on. And I think that was the first thing that we really spent time talking to Manu about was what is the toughest part of his job? And really, the toughest part is keeping those lights on.
1: And Manu really does, I think, have one of the toughest jobs in the country because he's also managing the diversity of state interests and the benefits of those interests to those states. And not only that, but he took over the job just a few months before COVID hit. So he managed us through the pandemic.
2: Definitely. And if you think about the territory, West Virginia, New Jersey, D.C., Pennsylvania, All of those states have very, very different views on what the future is supposed to look like. So totally agree with you, Noha. That's a tough job. Beyond that, you've also got to figure out plant retirements, integrating renewables. And we learn a lot about leadership, particularly during tough times like the pandemic.
1: And also dealing with environmental justice issues in the wholesale power markets, which is becoming a much more difficult subject to address.
3: Definitely.
2: So I'm super excited about this episode. hope you guys enjoy the show.
1: Thanks for joining us, Manu.
3: Hey, thanks, Noha, and thanks, Mike, for having me. I did want to note up front, when you introduced the name of your podcast, I hope it's spelled K-N-O-W, power, as opposed to no power.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is K-N-O-W. Yes,
2: indeed. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us here. It's terrific to have you on. Maybe before we dive in, our goal here is to kind of democratize what is a super complicated and pretty weedy industry. Maybe before we get into your background and a bit about you, what's a PJM? Can you describe that to us? Give us a little background on your organization, what it does, what your responsibilities and things are?
3: Yeah, you bet. So PJM is a, what's called a regional transmission organization, which if you're not familiar with the industry, probably doesn't make you any more... Understanding of what PJM is. So, we're an organization that manages the power grid, right? And we manage the power grid for about one in five Americans, about 65 million people, 13 states in the District of Columbia. So, what does it involve managing the power grid? It's really managing the transmission system. So, we don't own the transmission system, but we direct the operation of it. We direct the operation of generation in PJM. There are over 1,400 generators. And We do all of that through the power of competitive markets. So you can think of us as an organization that manages the power grid using efficient operations, using forward planning, and using competitive markets.
2: That's awesome. And to give some scope of the territory that Manu's is talking about, that 13-state region spans all the way from Michigan, south to the sort of Virginia-North Carolina border, and then east to where New Jersey and Pennsylvania meet New York. So it's essentially all of the mid-Atlantic states are pretty much within the territory that PJM is managing there.
1: So Manu, maybe it'd be helpful if you could just give us some background on you, how you got here, what your career path was, and and sort of what you find really gratifying about this position.
3: Yeah, thanks, Noha. I can give you the long version, but I'll try to I'll try to keep it succinct. I was born in India and I grew up in the Middle East. Came to Philadelphia for college, had several jobs in Texas after that, mostly in the energy trading space, in the energy risk management space, asset management. So managing both the operations at generators, but also all of the commercial activities around power generators. And then I managed an energy retail business and a home services business. So I've had a pretty diverse background in the energy space and in some adjacent spaces as well. I came to PGM in 2020. And I found myself at a point in life where I wanted to do something that had some purpose that was bigger than me, bigger than the organization itself, some purpose that was of service more broadly. And PGM seemed like a really interesting opportunity to do that. I and mean, we're, we're right in the middle of the of an energy transition, right? It's not the only energy transition there. I mean, there have been many transitions, but we're in the middle of a big one. And, you know, if we can do our job well, I think it can really be of benefit to the 65 million people who we serve. And so that's what, what drew me here. What, what's most gratifying about the role, what's always gratifying, you know, there are small things and big things. I mean, I think in the close to home space, it's gratifying to work with people to help grow other people, to help develop leaders within, you know, my own organization. So I find that I've always found that very gratifying. Looking more broadly, I think we are making a difference to the industry. I think we are making a difference to the energy transition. And we're doing it just not on our own. PGM is a stakeholder driven organization. We have over a thousand members and many, many stakeholders who aren't members. And so I think it's pretty neat to be able to work with such a broad group of people to try to drive change in our industry. And I think we are, which is mostly fun.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think it's interesting where PJM is sort of positioned here because you guys aren't a political organization. You're not advancing policies per se, but policies are innate to sort of all aspects of our industry, and frankly, all the things that you guys do on a day-in and day-out basis. How has it been for you, kind of transitioning from the private sector to this quasi-public, but not quite a policy-making entity that is trying to manage all of the different personalities, all the different ideas, concepts, views of the future across such a big and such a diverse 13-state territory like the one that PGM operates in?
3: It's been hard, Mike. I think it's probably the the honest answer. (laughs) Sure. You know, in the private sector, I could make the decisions that I thought I needed to make and adjust them as I needed to adjust them when they weren't exactly right and sort of keep doing that. In this role, it takes longer to get stuff done. It really does, because you have to consult with a lot of people, you have to take their input, and you have to listen to their input. I have, since I've been here, though, been a really big supporter Of our stakeholder process, because I think it, even though it is hard, I think it does result in better outcomes. And whether it's the wisdom of crowds sort of philosophy, there's a lot of data that shows that when you get input from a lot of people, you end up with a better, more thoughtful product. And then here it helps that the people we're talking to are all actually experts in their field. And so they add a lot to our own thinking and our own expertise. So I'd say hard, but worth it.
1: Mana, you talked about the transition and that we've been through many transitions. And, And I was certainly inspired to start my company when we went from coal to gas. And now I never could have imagined in 2016 when I did that, that we would be here looking at this massive renewable transition. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you guys are managing that? And maybe the latest reliability study that you guys just put out, you know, where are we and how are you guys handling it?
3: Yeah, for sure. You know, when I said we've been through many transitions, what I was thinking about was the last transition, the shale gas revolution that supported the building out of a lot of gas-fired combined cycle plants in PGM that replaced a lot of coal generation in PGM. In fact, from, I think this is right, although don't hold me to it, from 2005 to 2020, we reduced our carbon emission rate in PGM by 40-ish percent right? Our NOx rate went down by 95% or 85%. I think our SO2 rate was down by 95%. I think that's right. I mean, a huge, huge transition. And our markets and our planners and our members handled that transition sort of no problem at all. And so that was a very powerful story. Now, we find ourselves in a new transition. We're going from still some coal, a lot of gas, to more renewables we have a very large amount of renewables in our interconnection queue, almost 250,000 megawatts of renewables in our queue. And this transition is a little different. It's different for a few reasons. One, renewables are intermittent generators, so they have to be married up with other generators that can sort of follow their load shape, whether those are batteries on site or thermal generators or some other solution. And so you need a lot more renewable generators to replace one megawatt of the type of generation that's retiring. And we actually just did put out a study, as you said, Noha, to sort of examine various trajectories of the transition, right? We weren't making a statement on good or bad. We were just trying to predict what is. And, you know, there are a few different findings of that study. I think one of them is no matter what scenario you look at, we're going to end up in a much more renewable green future. I think that's undeniable. I think the other finding is that the policies within our footprint, while they're very diverse, are pushing quite hard to accelerate the pace of this transition. And they're pushing in two directions. One, they're pushing for additions, right? New renewable generation. And in some cases, they're pushing for subtractions. They're pushing for existing thermal generation to retire. And really what the study found was at the pace at which we see generators retiring today, mostly because of policies, although in some cases because of economics, the pace that we see electrical load potentially growing because of data centers, because of electrification, and the relatively slow pace at which we see new generation coming in really actually seal in the ground, we could be in some trouble in the later part of the decade, 2028, 2029, 2030. But the study also found that, you know, we have time. We have time to make sure that we're not in trouble. And the math of that is pretty simple. The math is add faster, right? So we're going to have to process our interconnection queues faster, get the new generation on quicker. And the math is also subtract potentially a little slower if the new generation doesn't come on as quick. So it's not a sky is falling situation it's just a you know we've got a lot of work to do and we have time to make sure that we do it but we we probably don't have a lot of time to waste.
2: So time is a feature here right we're sitting here in 2023 the paper that you're talking about i think kind of puts a stake in the ground right around 2030 as you said kind of towards the end of the decade here. So we do have some time in our universe 7 years is not a huge amount of time projects like these big infrastructure projects do take a long time to site and permit and build but let's just say we have the runway for it. Do you feel like PGM has the tools in its toolkit, like that the generation technologies that are coming along here in the future, whether they're batteries, hybrids, the latest generations of renewable technologies, that they provide you with the services that you guys need to efficiently and
3: effectively operate the grid? Yeah, that's a complicated question, Mike. I mean, I think the, I tend to be an optimistic person. And so I tend not to focus on, hey, can we get the 100% today, right, renewable? Because I think, that's an interesting question, but if we're at 80%, I think the view towards 100% looks very different than where we are today, which is which is much less. So I think we're going to move in that direction. I think we have many of the tools that we need, and I think we've got many of the planning tools that we need. I think many of our markets have proven that they work, but I do think we need to change some things. And I think the things we need to sort of tweak in the short sort of timeframe are related to performance of the assets that we already do have. We need to support our generators in delivering high performance. In the near term and the intermediate term, we need to just make sure that we are incenting the right quantity of generators and that we're counting the value of those generators correctly, given all of the risks there are. And we need to make sure that we're proactively building out the transmission system. And I think... In each of those areas, we have many tools, but I think there's some more tools to be added to the toolkit. And that's what we're working on together as a stakeholder group.
1: So I recently attended an Electricity Policy Research Institute workshop. So EPRI's Think Tank in the space, and they were talking about just how well you guys are handling this transition and and sort of your data focus. and, And one of the, you know, their other ISOs were there as well. And they were talking about maybe having states handle resource adequacy to make your job a little bit easier and focus on this transmission build out. What are your thoughts on that? Because there was just a lot, of, a lot of folks saying, well, if the states handled the resource adequacy piece, then maybe the ISOs could focus more on the transmission side.
3: Yeah. You know, I think this is an ongoing debate nationally. My perspective is diversity is helpful. I think that there's a lot of discussion sometimes around PJM, and people come to me and say, you've got such a diverse set of states. How can you possibly create markets that serve the policy needs of people that are, on one hand, extremely aggressively decarbonizing, and on the other hand, you know their local economies are supported by fossil fuels, and they're less aggressively decarbonizing. And I think that's one way to think of it. I think the other way to think about it is practically that's what's happening. I mean, that is actually what's happening in the policy landscape. And the way to make sure that we are reliable through that transition is actually to have a large footprint that is diverse, because I think that allows those who want to decarbonize aggressively to have access to the broadest range of choices to achieve their policies, which ultimately will help consumers. But also, I think it allows us as grid operators the broadest range of resources to support reliability for the full footprint. And so I I happen to think that having a large, diverse solution to resource adequacy is actually more reliable and more efficient. Now, having said that, within PGM, there are many utilities or there are some utilities that kind of handle their own resource adequacy. They're on what is called a FRR plan, which is just jargon, but it means that they handle their own resource adequacy. And in many cases, they work with their states. To do that. So I don't think they're also entirely incompatible.
1: Thank you. That's a great perspective. And I think follows your your optimism mantra.
2: Yeah, and, and I agree with that. I mean, I'd be interested in your perspective on this because I personally, my view is that I agree with you. I think that diversity is super helpful, right? You get to the opportunity to find the most premium locations for different technologies and things like that, if you're having difficulties developing resources in one portion of a geographic footprint, maybe it's easier to do so in another. Also, in a place that's as big as like PJM, it's very difficult to stress a system that's that large and robust. I was recently out in California ISO talking to a couple of their folks out there, and as of right now, it's a single-state ISO for the most part with a little bit of its competitive market that drifts off into some other portions of the American West there. But they're one of the most aggressive because of their state's policies in terms of, you know, the amount of renewables and battery storage resources that they've got on their footprint. And for me, it seemed very clear that Kaiso had resigned itself to a view that it probably couldn't do the rest of its mission to facilitate the state's decarbonization objectives if it didn't regionalize in a more comprehensive way, that they had to expand into the rest of the American West because it wasn't going to be possible to do it as a single state. Do you feel like the diversity in your footprint, is that one of PGM's biggest assets? Or do you ever wish, boy, I was a single state and I had one kind of regulator to deal with on the state side? How do you think about those two things?
3: Well, it definitely adds its complexity to my life and to to all of our lives. But I think that it is our biggest asset, right? I mean, we at PGM, we calculate that our activities add somewhere around $4 billion a year of value. A lot of that value comes from the diversity and the scale of what we manage, right? We can actually optimize across a huge part of the country and deliver the cheapest, most efficient choices for consumers and the most efficient dispatch for our generators, And the bigger the area that you can optimize, the more money you can save. But I I do want to sort of emphasize this point that it's not one or the other. And we're very committed to states that have goals and they're trying to achieve those goals. We just spent more than a year working with the state of New Jersey, for instance, on their offshore wind program and supported them in a solicitation to get transmission solutions and then help them. And they made the decision ultimately, but we certainly partnered with them in that to spend over $1.1 billion on transmission. But that $1.1 billion saved their consumers hundreds of millions of dollars because they were able to conduct that solicitation in a competitive way. And so we partner with our states and we're very committed to doing that. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think states have a significant role to play, but I also think to help them achieve their objectives, a diverse, large footprint is beneficial.
1: So I want to talk a little bit more about transmission, because at least I didn't realize how involved PJM staff was sometimes in just providing the data to the state regulators to make those decisions that end up saving consumers a lot of money. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, transmission settings has been such a hot topic. Even Esquire Magazine recently did a story on it, which I was just thrilled to see anybody talking about the RTOs and ISOs. you know, a mainstream kind of sexier publication. So I'd love to hear your perspective. And I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff that Bill Gates is doing in this space, but I want to educate the public more about what you guys are doing.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think transmission clearly is critical to provide reliable electric service. I mean, that goes without saying. I think why it's so much in the news these days is because there's so much more need for it. For two reasons. One, to connect more generators, right? A lot of these generators that are coming on need to be connected to the grid, but it's not just the wire that's tying them to the grid when they push their electricity in aggregate onto the system that creates overloads in other parts of the system. So you have to go and shore up the whole network. So clearly there's a need from that perspective, but there's also when we talk about diversity and you look at Europe, for instance, and Europe has proven, I think that to really benefit from diversity for a system that is increasingly intermittent transmission helps reduce the risk because like for our system right when it's you know it's sunny in one part of the system and be cloudy in another part of the system so the overall solar fleet actually has less risk because of that diversity same thing with offshore wind and onshore wind you know they don't have a perfect correlation and so having them together in the system adds diversity and transmission allows us as the grid operator, but then ultimately consumers as the beneficiary, access to a more diverse set of power sources. And that's why I think it's, it's sort of increasingly important. And we're working with states on their policy goals. We're working with the Department of Energy on their transmission studies. We're working on our own transmission studies, both for just the normal growth of the system, but then also for the interconnection studies to help all of these generators interconnect. And on top of all of that, right, we're looking at the need for transmission to connect different parts of the country. So lots of transmission work, and it's really important. Yeah, for me, the wires piece of the equation seems like
2: The linchpin to all of this at the end of the day, right? I mean, we, and I'd be curious in your perspective on this, is that one of the things that seems to me to be the biggest challenge about a resource mix that's evolving in the way that it is. Like if you imagine, you talked a lot about the coal to gas transition that happened sort of in the 2010-ish kind of timeframe there when we saw a lot of combined cycle resources coming online. But in a lot of ways, those look very similar to other centralized generating stations like a coal plant. You could almost kind of wipe the coal plant away, put a gas plant there, and they function in very similar ways. But now when we're talking about very different resources, resources that are trying to capitalize on that geographic diversity, the fact that certain characteristics are happening at different times of day or different times of the year and things like that, it feels like transmission is like the grease that allows those wheels to spin. And for the last hundred years or so, we didn't design the grid in a way where it was intended to facilitate that much more disparate future. Do you feel like that is almost the necessary milestone to get there? Do we have to reimagine the grid in a very different way to be able to achieve the energy transition?
3: You know, it's interesting, Mike, you would think that, right? That seems super intuitive. But but we have a lot going for us already. We have actually, in PJM, very strong interconnections to our neighbors. And you see that, like you see that during storms where either we're sending a lot of power to support them or they're sending a lot of power to support us. There's a lot of capacity between neighbors already. So there's a lot of transmission. Our own transmission grid is really robust. And then what we're seeing is that these renewable generators are connecting to different parts of the grid than the central station generators. They're connecting to lower voltage, a little bit more spread out generators. But we've done a study to look at distance, right? From load centers and actually our renewable generators are connecting not very far from load centers. And so what we're finding is there are certain parts of the backbone infrastructure that need to get upgraded. And today, the way that those upgrades work, we charge out the cost of those upgrades to the generators. And that makes sense. It it provides discipline for people to connect at the right place, but it's also very slow because you gotta go one project at a time, one project at a time, one project at a time. And there are other models in other parts of the country that have built out a backbone transmission to support lots of generators all at once. And I'd say we essentially did that with our partnership with New Jersey. But I think it's a question, should we do that more broadly or not? So we're starting from a pretty good place. Like we have a really robust grid. And you know I think we can identify what the corridors are that need to be buttressed for the majority of the, the new generation that's coming on. So the, the engineering problem is... It's not that hard, but it's a lot of physical build-out, and the regulatory regime at the moment is slow, even though we've done a lot of work to accelerate it with our interconnection process reform. The underlying thesis that interconnecting generators will pay for the cost that they cause, which makes a lot of sense, right? It, it does drive a lot of discipline, but it is slow, and that's part of the trade-off, because you then have to go one project at a time.
2: Yeah, and that was some of the benefits that I think you guys identified in New Jersey, right, is that there was an efficiency from essentially having the grid ready for future offshore wind solicitations that New Jersey would be able to do. So there was the cost benefit, but also it reduced uncertainty for those generators because you knew that those systems were kind of already in place.
3: Right, and by planning it all at once, we saved money. It was cheaper to plan it all at once by hundreds of millions of dollars.
2: No question. And I think the other consultants found that too. Is that the model? Do we replicate that kind of everywhere? Rinse and repeat across the footprint?
3: That's a model. I mean, I I think that there are trade-offs with that model, right? And if you talk to consumer advocates, and I won't speak for them, but I would imagine that they would say, hey, we like that generators have the discipline to locate in places where it's the cheapest place for them to locate. And so I think there are legitimate policy trade-offs. I will say, though, that if the goal is... Rapid interconnection. It's much more rapid to plan many projects at once and build it rather than plan one project at a time. So I think you're trading off speed of the transition versus cost discipline.
1: Do you think the offshore example is also an easier one? Because, you know, at least some of the developers I talk to, part of it is being able to purchase the land.
3: Yeah, it's easier in a way, no hop. It's also easier in that the state of new jersey is coordinating the generation as well so they will procure the generation themselves right so it's a single state they're coordinating their state policy most of the transmission build out is within the state of new jersey although there's definitely some outside of the state of new jersey but new jersey is willing to pay for it all so i think that is it is a simplified example compared to where you're you know you're building out upgrades in multiple states to support the policy of maybe a third state but i mean
1: that's the reality we have to deal with that reality but to your point I think this is where diversity really helps having Absolutely. those states with different policies and I actually think it's much harder to run a single state ISO just from looking at every you know obviously like New York had really tried to address carbon pricing and that was really an uphill battle for them to try to figure out how do we meet the state's goals. And I think part of it was they had competing interests within their own state that weren't necessarily being buffered by, uh, like you've you you know, you've been talking about diversity of resources, diversity of interests. And I think when you don't have a mix that can sometimes be even more complicated.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a trade-off. There are definitely parts that are, that are more complicated and other parts that are less complicated, I'd say. The other thing, I just want to go back to something Mike said, which is, I want to call out the state of Illinois, because in their legislation, they, they are creating an incentive for generators to connect at the site of retiring generators. So the thing you talked about, right, in the prior transition, I think it is actually still possible in some cases, right, you got to have the wind resource or the solar resource be good where you're building. And I think I think that's smart. I think it's smart to try to use as much of the existing grid as it is. I think, you know, also if you think about electrification, there's many things that we could do as a society that are smart that allow us to get more out of what we have. Like, you know, incentives for people to charge their vehicles more at night and off peak. Well, you have to build less transmission because you're using what you have more. You have to build less generation. So I think there's a lot of neat thinking that's going on and and a lot of smart people focused on this. So again, I'm optimistic.
1: You know, this is something that I think will be really interesting to watch over the next 10 years is incorporating the demand side, because we've always talked about the supply side. And I think really over the last two years, there's been more focus than I've ever seen on incorporating the demand side. How do you envision PJM's role in incorporating the demand side?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this takes us back to our demand response program, which is, I think, one of the most successful programs in the world. And also what is called FERC order 2222, which is looking for ways to connect what are called distributed energy resources to the grid, right? So these are resources that are behind the meter at an industrial facility or aggregated resources that are, you know, even homes, right? Your Tesla power wall battery at your home, create an aggregation of five, 10,000 homes, and that can behave like a virtual power plant. And so I think the role of PGM to answer your question is really to administer the wholesale market. It's what we do today. But to make sure that we can incorporate the reliability value of all of these resources through our markets. And that's what we're working on. And it's complicated. There are jurisdictional questions around regulation. There are technical questions around, you know, how granular do you have to aggregate these resources so they can work in your market? But I think that's that's what success looks like, is we can actually get all the reliability value out of what people are already investing in. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like Uber, right? It's the concept of you've got this resource that's sitting there. Can you get more value out of it? I think it's similar when people put in backup generators in their home. It's like a car that's sitting in your garage. Can we use it when we need it? Sure,
2: sure. Sure. It is amazing to me when you think about the way and how quickly the perception of electric vehicles has changed in the country, isn't it? I mean, they were sort of, you know, when I was in college in Boulder, these were things that like, you know, modern day hippies kind of drove around in communities like Boulder, Colorado. And today when you turn on your TV, it's, you know, F-150 trucks and, you know, people in lumberjack plaid moving, you know, big plows of wood around and things. It's it's incredible how the auto industry has has really embraced that and how the conversation has changed around evs it's it's going to be such a huge part of our our lives i feel in the in the very very near term future
1: it's amazing how affordable they've become i mean i remember like a year before the pandemic started travis Kavula testified at the senate and i think it was senator king who asked him what do you think about electric vehicles And Travis and somebody from EIA and a bunch of others said, you know, this is kind of like a one percenter problem. (laughs) Like there aren't that many people that can afford these cars. And now they're really quite affordable. I mean, I'm in California. Everyone's driving them because our gas prices are just so high that you save so much money with an electric vehicle.
3: Yeah, it's innovation. You got to love it, right? I mean, that's, that's how things work.
1: Do you think that that transition, coupled with what's happening with the renewable transition, is part of the, we're subtracting more than we're adding, but also we're creating more use. Like, are you worried about maybe that increase over the next two or three years really having an impact in PJM?
0: Yeah.
3: You know, in that that reliability study that we put out, we did study a high electrification case and it's driven by that. It's driven by electric vehicles. It's driven by home and commercial heating primarily, and it's driven by data centers. And we're seeing increases in all of those categories. In fact, data centers is currently probably the largest increase. And of course, then hydrogen electrolyzers are coming fast and furious behind that as well. So there's a lot of reasons to believe that electric load, which has been sort of stable to falling slightly because of the advent of energy efficiency over time, is actually poised to increase significantly.
2: Yeah, it is amazing. It's almost like we're commoditizing sort of the clean energy economy down there. And I think you're right to point to order 2222. There's almost a circular effect, right? As you start to put a Tesla in everyone's driveway, you then create that opportunity to aggregate that together and then push those services back up to the grid. One of the things that I've been hearing a lot about in a lot of different forums, we're starting to see it show up in legislation in places like New Jersey again and others, for example, is bringing in our thought of an energy economy that looks very different than this. Also, recognizing maybe some of the areas where, as we built to the status quo that we have today, we weren't as thoughtful in our approach. And perhaps there are communities that were undervalued by many of the decisions that we had made on the way here. And if we're going to reimagine our energy universe in a different way, to bring those types of environmental justice concepts and take a more thoughtful approach to the future, how do you see or do you see a role for environmental justice and those types of concepts in what you all are doing over at PJM? How does that fit into your universe or does it?
3: Yeah, no, it's a great question, Mike. And it's, you know, at our last annual meeting, we actually had a panel on this topic. I think it's an essential topic. I think there clearly are people that have been left behind or have disproportionately borne the brunt of sort of all of our industrialization right? Of which the greatest part. I don't think it's just the power grid. I think it's just the, the creation of an industrialized society. And how do you design the next generation in a way that's fair, I think is a is a critical question. How that translates into what it is that we do, I think is less clear at the moment, right? How do you actually take that and action that is less clear. I think it's a conversation we started with our members at the annual meeting I think it's a conversation we need to continue to have I think at the very least and I was struck by something that one of the panelists said at the annual meeting when they were asked hey what does this have to do with us it's all good what does it have to do with us and you know I think we're already pretty representative and and she asked back well do you actually have all the voices in the room representing all of the interests of all of the people who you serve right and It was a rhetorical question, but it was a powerful question. And I think it's something that we really need to continue to focus on. It's not just PGM; It's our over a 1,000 members and other stakeholders. Are we selecting people? Are we empowering people who represent the range of people who we exist to serve? I think it would be a pretty good starting place. But if you all have ideas, I'm very open to them.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is certainly an issue that is near and dear to my heart making sure we're focusing on underserved communities, but also making sure we have diversity in the energy space. And that, that diversity is really about grooming people for the right positions and having thought leaders from diverse backgrounds to really help facilitate that discussion. And I will say, I think that we have made tremendous progress. I've been in this space for about 15 years now and it looks much different than it used to. And I don't think we would have been having this, robust level of conversation 15 years ago. So progress is slow, but it's definitely happening. And I think that's fantastic. And I was very delighted to see that you guys had that panel and that this has really become a huge part of the discussion. Again, you guys are PJM is leading the way, which is really nice.
3: Well, thank you, Noha.
1: I want to take us back a little bit to you took over basically right before COVID. And that was a very interesting time in the power space, but also had to have been incredibly challenging to come in as CEO of such a large, complex organization and then basically have the world shut down. And I'm curious, you know, people talk about how challenging of a time this is for energy. Are there lessons that you reflect upon during kind of taking over, leading everyone through COVID, which I think you did an incredible job doing, that now being able to translate some of those skills and some of those lessons to this transition.
3: Yeah, there's a, a, we have done a lessons learned from COVID for ourselves. And there's a lot of lessons just around readiness and preparedness and the sort of reminder in a pretty stark way that no matter how much you prepare, things will not happen the way you prepared for them. So you better prepare to be flexible as well as part of your preparation. But I think actually the leadership Aspects of COVID were just leadership. You know, leadership is about people, ultimately, right? You have management, which is really important, that you manage processes and assets and things, but you lead people. And leading people is about connection, it's about empathy, it's about listening, it's about having people's back and supporting them and supporting their growth and development. It's about recognizing them. And so I had, I was very lucky. I joined in January we went remote on March 13th. I joined January 1st. So I had a little bit of time, but I managed to make connections with with people at PGM in that time. Like I, I managed to talk to them about my leadership philosophy to get to know them a little bit. Enough of a base where we could build on that remotely for the next year and a half, I think it was. Maybe a little bit more than I was. <laughs> Might have been closer to two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and then even with the stakeholder body, right? We managed to meet each other. We managed to have at least enough face-to-face where we could continue that conversation remotely. So I think there are lessons, but the leadership lessons are actually taking just general leadership practices and, and values and continuing them just in a different format.
2: I think that that's well said. I also think that it is modest. Transitioning to being a CEO of a firm like PJM is a challenge in its own right. And something like 90 days later, then being thrust into a Otherworldly scenario for the next two
3: years.
0: Well, <laughs> I,
1: have the have to call the, I have to call
3: out the staff. I mean, yeah. DJM staff just is incredible, and they they just did whatever was needed to be done to get through it. Like it was no no one hesitating, and we had some people that were home the whole time. That we had some people that had to come in every day, and you know, I can't imagine for those coming in every day. I mean, they were scared. I'm sure they were scared. And if you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, it was pretty scary. But they did it. And we had people that, I mean, at the extreme, we had people that lived away from their families for 10 weeks at a time in a trailer at one of our control sites to make sure that we had an adequate backup crew in case everybody else got sick. So it was definitely an incredible sacrifice by the
2: PGM team. Well, without a doubt, I think that the operations folks that, like the actual control room operators that are driving the grid deserve way more credit than they publicly get for that. That had to be such a difficult time. I mean, you had folks like living literally, let me take a step back here. If we're thinking about PJM's control room, it is this huge, complex system underground. It, you literally take an elevator. How far is it, Manu? It's it's a pretty good way. underground, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's a classified distance, Mike.
2: Bah, fair enough. <laughs> I don't
3: know if it's classified Your or not. Your secret but... is safe. Our listeners are yeah.
2: very, very good with confidential information. So anyway, it's, it is underground. <laughs> it is literally a bunker with a big computer in it. And, you know, folks were like sleeping in there for weeks at a time so that we could make sure that they keep the lights on. I mean.
3: Well, we had trailers outside so they oh, could okay. see the sun. But still, they were not able to meet with their families for 10 weeks. I mean, that's it, a, I'm really grateful to to our operations people and our security people and our facilities people, our technology people who made that happen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, kudos to them that they get less credit for all of the things that they did than they deserve. So that's absolutely right.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad we're talking about this because I know during winter storm, all these different storms, there's tons of headlines about, you know, we lost power here, we lost power there. And there's not a lot of coverage on, we kept the grid safe. Our operators worked through the night to make this happen. Our linemen were out there fixing things. I mean, and I understand why the press does that. It's not as sexy to say, you know, we had controllers sleeping and trailers outside, but I think it's so important for the general public to understand just how much it takes to keep the lights on for them during certain situations.
2: So I was going to sort of move into the future here, Mono. If you were king for a day and you could snap your fingers, change anything that you wanted to, what would you do with unfettered power to help our industry along and to execute on your vision for what we need for the future?
3: Yeah, I don't know how realistic that is, Mike, but but, (laughs) (laughs) given the one range to rule them all.
2: That's right.
3: (laughs) The way I think about the world, right? I, I think that energy policy can be more efficiently achieved if it applies to a broader region. And the broadest region for us is, of course, the broadest region would be a global policy, but I think for us, it would be a policy for our country. The more that we're actually all together executing on a joint up policy that is national, I think the more efficient the outcome is going to be for our citizens and our consumers. And I think right now, there's some of that happening for sure, right? You see the Inflation Reduction Act and the investments that we're making in that But there's also a lot of sub-regional state policies, city policies that are driving things. And that's fine too, right? If that's what it is, and then we're going to make that work and we're going to do our best and and try to get still efficient market-based competitive outcomes. But certainly the most efficient way to get to where we want to get to is, is with a national set of policies.
2: Certainly the gas industry seems to like it quite fine for sure. So I would be supportive of that too.
1: You know, you talked about global policy, but really more realistically, maybe national policy. Do you think some of the national policies adopted in other places? Can we learn from those other countries? You know, mistakes made, things we can really consider for a national policy here.
3: Yeah, I mean, the global policy landscape is so complicated, right? Because there's a geopolitical aspect to the security of countries, as you're seeing with Europe and Ukraine at the moment, and Russia and the dependence on Russian gas. But then there's, from a geopolitical perspective, in our energy ecosystem, our reserves of shale gas are an incredible national security resource. I mean, if you think about what energy prices are in Europe or Asia, and you look at the energy prices we enjoy in PGM or anywhere in the U.S., I mean, it's a huge industrial advantage. It's not an easy thing to give up that industrial advantage. You look at climate change. I mean, climate change is is a very big deal and needs to be addressed. It is a global problem. And if you're a policymaker, it's a tough choice to say, hey, I will essentially end up with higher prices in in my area to do good for humanity. But the consequence of that could end up being shifting of generation or shifting of industrial production to other countries that are rapidly expanding coal generation, as China is doing at the moment. So (laughs) the policy choices are very hard. And thankfully at PGM, we're not policymakers, but you know, definitely our policymakers don't have it easy at the moment.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and then there are lots of various interests to consider for our economy. And you're right. I think that the war has really cast an important light on this issue.
2: So somebody else had asked me this question. I'll pose it to you. Is the U.S. system for doing this, is this the best of the worst? Or if we had our way, would we go, boy, Singapore's doing a heck of a job. We should try what they're doing or Australia or some other country. Where do you think? Do we stack up number one or where
3: are we on the spectrum there? I think there's a lot to learn from every part of the world, right? And so, yeah, I think we're number one on many things, but I think that there are other parts of the world that are further ahead on this journey. And even within our country, there are parts of the country that are further ahead on this journey. And I think if we're smart, we will try to learn all the lessons that they have learned sort of the hard way from their experience, rather than having to repeat the hard way. So I think there's a lot to learn actually. But certainly if you look at price outcomes in the US, if you look at innovation, even just the development of shale gas, which is an incredible story, if you read that story, You know, it happened here and it didn't happen here randomly, I don't think. It happened here because our ecosystem supports that. And that's something for us all to be proud of.
2: Very very much so. I mean, those combined cycle machines and the just plethora of natural gas that's available out there has had such a profound effect on the economy, on our energy system. And even as we go through this transition, it will continue to do so for decades to come. It's going to be a huge part of our ecosystem for sure.
3: But there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn from other people. And, and you know, I'm looking at Australia. I'm looking at at Europe. And there's many lessons that we can learn from them as well, as the other way around, too.
1: But it was also great you to, to point out that even within the U.S., because a lot of folks say California has been a thought leader in this space, and they certainly have been more aggressive. But Californians also pay probably some of the highest electricity prices in the U.S. So it'll be interesting to see if we can make this some with PJM's focus on, well, how does this also translate to the customer? It'll be interesting to see what lessons we can learn there.
3: Yeah. And Texas is another, you know, huge ecosystem of sort of free market economy that actually ended up with some of the highest wind penetration in the country. And it's an oil and gas economy, but it has some of the highest wind penetration. And they made some proactive transmission investments to support that. And now they're, you know, they're managing all of that wind there. ERCOT is managing incredible variation in the output of that wind, and they're doing it successfully. And that's
1: something to be admired and, and learned from. It's so easy to do business in Texas. Like as former general counsel of a Texas company, it was just, I remember thinking, wow, it really is easy to set up a company. It's easy to deal with payroll issues. Like Texas truly is open for business. And it, it is really interesting to see how that, that has been reflected in this energy transition.
2: So, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of how we get to a universe somewhere post-2030 and what are the tools, the pieces that we need, what are the considerations. You know, I liked the theme of, you know, we've got a lot to learn from our comrades in other places, whether they're our neighbors in the States or or afar here. So if we take all of those good lessons and good insights to heart, where do you see the world 20 years from now? What does it look like to you? No wrong answers. What's the future in, let's call it, uh, I don't know, 2045?
3: I think we're probably all working for (laughs) ChatGPT. I mean, we haven't talked about that at all, right? But if you look at just the innovation that's happening in the world, the emergence of another intelligence, and there are many interesting questions there, when and if that could even achieve sentience, it's very hard to predict. I think we live in a time where the rate of change over the next 20 years will be faster than it has ever been. And so I don't know, I don't know if we'll have a whole different technology for storage of energy. We'll have different technologies for, for generation. And that's over the next 20 years, which I think is gonna, as I said, is gonna be just rapid. If you think back 20 years ago in 2003, if you were gonna say, hey, okay, where would we end up in 2023? I certainly would've been way wrong, right? So So <laughs> yeah. I think we have to be flexible in our thinking and in our design and embrace the results of the innovation that are coming.
2: Very well said. Well, Mono, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining
3: us.
1: Yeah, this has been wonderful. And thanks for your continued leadership. Really, you're in such a pivotal, important role. And, and I'm so grateful to have you there.
3: Yeah, thank you, Mike. And thank you, Noha.
0: You've been listening to No Power, hosted by Noha Sidholm and Michael Borgatti head on over to nopowershow.com, that's K-N-O-W, where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next time on No Power.